And then I looked at the song We Three Kings, and I've always, you know, as a pastor, we pick apart the stories of the Bible, and we try to find where, where we got it wrong, and it's fun to, to ask questions and trick people. And, and how many kings were there? Well, there's three. Why? Because that's the song. We Three Kings. Well, we don't know how many there were. In every nativity scene, there's three guys and one camel, or maybe three guys and three camels, if they're really generous. And they're always traveling by themselves, and they're, they're kind of gazing into the stars. But if these guys were anybody, and they were carrying gold, frankincense, and myrrh with them, they brought protection. They brought people and servants. They didn't probably cook their own meals. They didn't make their own camp. Uh, they didn't feed their own animals and water them. They had people. If, if you look back in history, they probably bought, brought a small uh, army with them, a small band of fighters with them to protect them because as in they weren't kings, the second thing wrong with the song, they weren't kings, they were kingmakers. And they were very important people. And they didn't just travel around nonchalantly by themselves carrying bags of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So, you know, I'm like, they, they, didn't, they didn't think that through very well. Why, why are we seeing that? And then, incidentally, Mary, did you know, uh, Andrew and I argued about Mary, did you know, for at least 20 minutes yesterday. Uh, I said, it's a good song. He says, no, it's not. And, and I get why he says, no, it's not. He says, the, the, you know, of course Mary knew. And, and I thought, well, yes, yeah, she knew. What did she know? Well, she knew what the angel told them. But, you know, not even the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teacher of the law knew who Jesus was. I don't think she knew what kind of Messiah he was going to be because they didn't know. How would she be taught? She knew he was the Son of God because the angel told them, but she didn't know he was going to walk on water or, or do a lot of the miracles he did. So there was a lot of pondering in her mind. I thought one of her first questions was, how in the world am I supposed to actually raise the Son of God? Do I spank or not spank? Will I ever have to spank? Um, will he eat his vegetables right from the beginning? Will he, I mean, how do you do this? So, I, I, you might, you know, maybe I'm sharing too much of my personality, but when little things like this strike me, I start thinking about them, and, I, and I'm like, okay, why? Well, the, the question, Mary, did you know, I think is a rhetorical question. I think you're not supposed to answer it. You're just supposed to think about it. So I'm okay with that. Mary, did you know? That's why we sang it. I think it's a great song. We Three Kings, we sang it because there's no other song about the wise men. And they're an important part of the story. And, and so now I pointed it out, so now it's okay that we sang it. Um, silent night, no, probably not very silent, but that's not the point, is it? The point of each and every one of these songs, and the point of, of most of our Christmas carols, and the point of the manger scene, is to get us to think about Jesus. Jesus is bigger in the manger scene because he's the focal point. We're supposed to center in visually on Jesus and then look out from there to see what else is happening. When we think about Silent Night, we're supposed to think about the, the God of the universe being born in a, in a, in a manger, being born in a, in a stall, if you will, and being placed in a manger. And It's not really that important whether he cried or not. The important thing is that he was there and that he was born and that he had to grow up and he had to live. I really like some of these songs, even We Three Kings. The redeeming point is that they didn't stop in the manger. If you listen to the words, we went right up to his death on the cross. Then we went to his resurrection. Then we told the whole story. Didn't stop with just Jesus in the manger. If that was all we had, 
that would be such a simple religion. Hey, do you believe that Jesus was born in a manger? Sure. Excellent. That would, that would leave us wanting, it would leave us lacking, and that's not all there is. We sang the last song, it's not really a Christmas song at all, but it brought Christ right to today. And, and that's the point, and that's the question we're going to ask, is what about Jesus? And the focal point of Christmas is Jesus, and if we, if we left here today, and all we left with was, oh, what a cute baby, what a nice nativity scene. Oh, those were such good songs. I really miss singing those songs. Why do we always have to sing those new Christmas carols that we don't know? And then someone will walk out the door and go, why'd they change that one song? I like it the old way. And if that's all we left with, we'd be wasting our time being here. We have to talk about Jesus, but not simply Jesus in the manger, but Jesus the person, Jesus the Son of God. Who was he? What was the point? And so I, I put together a list, and then I, I started digging in Scripture, and then I have seven things for you that I want to point out about Jesus. And they're, they're not in any particular order, mainly the order I thought about them, but we're going to start way back in Genesis. So in your notes, you see Genesis 3, 14, and 15. I'll read these Scriptures to you, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you when we're just going to refer to them, but Genesis 3, 14, and 15 says this. So the Lord God said to the serpent, hopefully you're now in tune with this, is after Adam and Eve have sinned. This is after they've been confronted by God. They have, they are, they have identified as, as the sin. Now the curses are being handed out. And it says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Okay, we're talking about the snake. And I will put enmity or fear, distress, distrust, I'll, I'll put an agitation, okay, a natural, natural inborn fear. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. So it's not just women that are afraid of snakes. You throw a snake down in front of me, I'm leaving the room. I'm coming back with a shovel, and if it's your pet, you better have it picked up before I get here. Okay, I don't deal with snakes in any other way. I might drive over them, but I'm not getting within four feet of one if I don't have to. It's all of us. We have this enmity. Okay? Now here's the important part. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. We've changed gears in that moment. And we, we might not notice it if we didn't have the story of Jesus and his death on the cross and his resurrection. We might not know if we didn't have everything in between that we've been given. We might not understand this is prophecy. But when it says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel, but he refers to the seed of the woman, and you refers to the person or the entity that, that, that took over the snake's body. So this is Jesus and Satan. Okay, so in your notes, Jesus was promised in Genesis chapter 3. The unnamed he in verse 15 is Jesus. Okay, and it says that Satan will be an annoyance, an irritant, a constant source of conflict. That's what Satan was. He tried to kill all the babies in Bethlehem. He, he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. He tried to mess with the disciples. He got a hold of Judas. He, he oversaw certain things. He tried to beat Jesus for 33 years. He tried to get in the way. He tried to, to make things not work out. He was a, an annoying, irritant, and, and he was a thorn in the flesh of Jesus. What did Jesus do? 
Well, see in your notes, Jesus will ignore all that. Not ignore it like, oh, that didn't happen. But ignore it like, I'm not dealing with that right now. I'm not going to get excited about it. This will not affect me. Okay, ignore all that. And then he delivered the death blow to Satan's efforts. When Jesus died on the cross and then rose again, Satan had no more opportunity to get in the way of God's plan. Now all he has opportunity to do is get in the way of our growth spiritually and try to get in the way of people finding Christ. So Jesus was promised way back in Genesis. And we're not going to read it, but there's other scriptures that say it was the plan before creation. So before creation, God knew Adam and Eve would sin. God knew that Jesus was going to be the answer, that Jesus would come, be born in the manger, live a sinless life, die on the cross, and raise from the dead. And he knew that would be the death blow to Satan's plans. And it was promised way back in Genesis. And I, I don't think most people really got that until things started unraveling. So Jesus was promised. Now I'm going to read Matthew 2. I'm going to read verse 1 and 2 and then verse 11. There's a typo in your notes. You'll figure it out. I, I, and we'll go ahead and fill in that blank. Number 2, Jesus was a king at his birth. Jesus was a king at his birth. So Matthew chapter 2. Verse 1 and 2 and then 11. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw that the child, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now go to your notes, and we'll fill in that next blank. A, magi were eastern kingmakers. Okay, this is important to the story. We lose part of the story if we don't know who the magi were. They were kingmakers. They were a tribe of the Median Empire. You heard of the, the Medes and the Persians. Well, the Medes... They were a group of people. They were divided up in tribes, much like Israel was. And much like the Levites were the priestly tribe of Israel, the Magi were the priestly tribe of the Medes. They went much farther, though. They also became the scientists and the astrologers and the politicians. And at the time where Jesus was born, at that time they had progressed along through multiple empires, that's how, that's how wise and powerful and renowned they were. As new kingdoms came and defeated the old kingdom, the Magi stayed in place. They are the ones that Daniel became the leader of under Nebuchadnezzar. These, these Magi became kingmakers in that no one could be crowned king without their approval. If someone was, was in the bloodline of the king, and, and they were to become king soon, they had to go to the Magi school, and they had to meet a standard set by the Magi before they could be crowned king. And if they didn't meet the standard, someone else would be chosen. Okay? At the time of Jesus, of course, Rome was in charge of the whole world. They, had, they were dominating the world. They were the world power. But the Persian Empire was still sort of intact, Rome controlled them, but they didn't have a lot of control, and Rome feared them because they had the means to revolt 
and actually win. Well, almost no one else had those means. The Jews could have wrote all they wanted. They were never going to accomplish anything. The Persians, however, could accomplish a revolt that could kick Rome off of at least their territory. And history tells us that the Magi of the time were seeking a new king because they had dethroned their king because he was weak and would not fight against the Romans. So the Persians, or the eastern, the eastern kingdom of the Roman Empire, was looking for a new leader to lead their people against the Romans. And pretty much everybody knew this, and there was really nothing anyone could do about it until it was time to fight. So King Herod, think about this, when these magi roll into town with their entourage and their Asian soldiers who are there to protect them, they roll into town and they say, hey, where's the king who's born king of the Jews? That would have made Herod really nervous. The guy was already a freak because he had killed a couple of children and a wife and a mother-in-law because he thought they were plotting against his throne. So he was really nervous about this, and his instinct was, I need to get rid of this threat to my throne. I don't know what they're doing, but if they say there's a king of the Jews born, there must be a king of the Jews born. That was his reaction. So these, these magi showed up, and they were kingmakers. And everyone knew it, and, and, and there was, they, had a, they had a task. We should ask the question, how did the magi know about Jesus? How did they know to look for him? Well, being you notice these magi retained the teachings of Daniel. Daniel was their leader in Babylon. Now, many years have passed. Now we're dealing with the, the Persians, the Medes and the Persians. But Daniel taught the magi in his day, left his writings. And in Daniel 9, 24 to 27, you can look this up on your own. It tells exactly when the Messiah would be born. Not to the day, but to the year. And if your calculations were correct, to the day. So because they had these teachings and because they were wise and they were apparently at least recognizing the God of Daniel, at the very least, they were watching. Now that's a condemnation to the Jews because they were not watching and it was in their scriptures. So the Jews had all the information to know when the Messiah was coming. And the Jews should have been watching because they can also read and count. They should have been watching, but they weren't. But these foreigners from the Eastern Empire were watching, and they knew it was coming, so they were paying attention. And in Numbers 24, it says, it says the Messiah will come with a star and a scepter. And they knew enough that when they saw a new star, they put two and two together, and they said, okay, this is the sign of the Messiah. And they took off to find out where that star was going was to end up. And we can talk a lot about what that star was. That's not the point today. But when they found them, they were in a house. Jesus was probably a, a year or two old at least. And then see these magi also recognized this king was God. Okay? They asked, where is the king? When they got there, they not only gave them the gifts, which were due a king, but they worshipped. And they knew what worship was. And worship was received. So at the very, very least, they recognized that the Jewish God was born into humanity. Maybe they even recognized that the God of all creation was born into humanity. We don't know, because we don't know anything about these guys. 
They, they turned and they went back to where they came from, and we don't really know anything about them. But Jesus was promised from the beginning, and he was a king at his birth. Number three, Jesus became the Messiah at his baptism. And I put it there officially because, well, A, Messiah is much more of a title or position than it is a name. Now, some of you just call me Pastor, and, and that's my name to you. I'm Pastor, but my name is associated to my position or my title. So that's the same. The, the name is the title. Some of you call me Pastor Dave, so you use my title and my name. Some of you just call me Dave, you just use my name. Well, Messiah is a title. It's the same word as Christ. We have Jesus Christ. We might say Jesus the Messiah. We might say the Messiah is coming. But if someone said Messiah, like Messiah is here, that would also be correct. So when I say Jesus became the Messiah officially at his baptism, I'm saying that event was his inauguration, if you will. The, the proclaiming of his office to be fulfilled. So it's much, it's much more of a title B. In John 4, 25 to 26, Jesus himself identifies himself as the Messiah. This is at the woman at the well, where he interacts with the woman, and he says, I am the Messiah. In, in Matthew 16, 16, Peter identifies Christ as the Messiah. Jesus says, who do you say I am? And he said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, Christ and Messiah being the same word, Peter identified him as that. But D, as Messiah, Jesus is identified as both prophet, priest, and king. So who is Jesus as the Messiah? Well, he's the prophet because he embodied and preached the word of God. He fulfilled all the Old Testament. He became who the Messiah was supposed to be. He, he met every standard and he accomplished every goal of the Old Testament. And then he spoke basically what we have as the New Testament. He taught the apostles who became the authors of the New Testament, he spoke new doctrine into place. He explained some of the old doctrine. He made the transition. So he was a prophet to them and is still a prophet to us. He's a priest because his death atones our sins and reconciles us to the Father. Because of his death, we can have a relationship with God. And he's king because after his resurrection, God gave him all authority. Matthew 28, 18, it says, All authority has been given me. Now, he never really was lacking authority, but when he rose from the dead and completed his work as the Messiah, his authority was restored to him. No more earthly restrictions. No more boundaries that he needed to keep as a human. He was king, and he would sit on a throne. So he was promised, he was king, he was the Messiah, Number four, Jesus died as the atoning sacrifice. The atoning sacrifice for our sins and all, for all who would believe in him. So, to atone means to pay the price. It means to clear the ledger, make full payment. There's a debt that's owed. When the debt is fully paid, it's atoned for. We don't use that word much anymore. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 21, it's in your notes. It says, for you know... But it was not with perishable things, such as gold or silver, that you were redeemed. Redeemed is another word we could use interchangeably with atoned. Okay, uh, to redeem something, you pay for it, you, you pay the price held against it, you get it back then. You were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you by your ancestors. 
But with the precious blood of Christ, so not gold or silver, but with the blood of Christ, okay, a lamb without blemish or defect, there's the sacrificial language, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in him. He is the atoning sacrifice. We can only believe, we can only be saved, we can only have our sins forgiven, we can only have eternity guaranteed in heaven because of Jesus. We come to him and we go through him. He is the atoning sacrifice. There's no other way to be in a right relationship with God than to believe in this sacrifice and accept the gift of forgiveness. So he's the atoning sacrifice. Number five, Jesus' resurrection allows us to have victory over sin and death. I can have victory. Jesus had victory over sin and death. He rose from the grave. He, he never succumbed to sin. I can have victory because of Jesus' victory. 1 Corinthians uh, 15.57, I'm sorry, says, When the perishable have been cleared with the imperishable, that's a salvation term, okay, when the perishable have been clothed with the imperishable, and when the mortal with immortality, again, salvation, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. So, make it simple, when I got saved, and when you got saved, death was swallowed up in victory. We have victory over death. So, A, 1 Corinthians 15, 54 says, we are victorious at the point of our salvation. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says that this victory comes through Jesus. Okay, this victory comes through Jesus. It says, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It comes through Jesus. And John 5, 4 tells us that everyone who's been born of God has this victory. So we get victory through Jesus. Number six, Jesus will one day reign as king on this earth, as well as the new earth. Now, you may not be familiar with this earth and the new earth, but he's reigning as king now, and he will reign as king later, but there is an in-between where he will reign on a throne on this earth. So Revelation 20, 1 through 6, says, I saw an angel com coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his right hand a great chain. He sees the dragon... That ancient serpent, referring back to Genesis, who was the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him and kept him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Three times a thousand years were mentioned. Christ will reign on this earth on a throne for a thousand years. That's still to come, obviously. Then there's the new heaven and the new earth. And it says in chapter 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from out, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne say, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So Christ sits on the throne in the new heaven and the new earth. Now I wrote in your, in your notes there that he is a little hard to decipher because it doesn't give us a, a really good reference point. And he is either God the Father or it's Christ the Son. But we're told over and over again that, that Christ said, I and the Father are one. And anything that Christ said, the Father also said. And anything the Father said, Christ said. It could also be the, the, the God of, of in sitting in Trinitary form sitting there. But it always includes Christ. And he will sit and reign on the new heaven and the new earth. So he will reign one day. So we started with Genesis, the predicted Messiah. And we, we've gone all the way to the future, the new heaven and the new earth, where he will reign for eternity. But let's come back to today. What's he doing today? Well, today, right now, uh, yesterday, tomorrow, until he returns, Jesus is currently calling the unsaved to be saved from their sin. There is nothing else that, that Jesus has to gain by letting the earth continue on. He's going to get all the worship he needs when we're in heaven. He is, he's not going to be any more God because we continue on. The sole reason why God is allowing this earth to remain and for babies to be born and for people to grow up and people to live on this earth, the sole reason that this earth still functions is so that the gospel can be shared and people can be saved from their sins. And so that should be something that we talk about all the time. It should be something we share all the time. Our conversations should include, by the way, Jesus died for you. Your sins can be forgiven. You can have eternity in heaven. Jesus is currently calling the unsaved. In your notes, here's some scriptures. We're just going to refer to them. You can look them up later. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned, and that's the problem. We've all sinned. Every one of us has committed sin. And, and Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. So what was the atoning payment for? It was a payment for the sin. It was the debt we owe for sin. We sin against God. We owe him our life. Jesus paid the price on the cross. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 says the gift of God is eternal life. So we can have eternal life by accepting a gift. Christmas time, we get gifts. I actually got a lot of gifts yesterday. It was, it was a little surprising, and it was quite fun. I got a lot of gifts. I actually got to be the last one to open a gift because I had a couple more than anyone else. Never happened before. It was wonderful. But you know what? Not a single one of those gifts was mine, 
until I received it. They could stack it around my chair, and I could refuse to open them, and I could say, I don't want any gifts, and I could make them take them back, or I could make them leave them in the garage. None of them were mine until I took them, and really they weren't mine until I opened them and received them. Well, this gift of salvation, this gift of forgiveness, the gift of God, is available to all, but only when they receive it. Okay, Romans 5.8 tells us that because he loves us, he died for us. That's what he did for us. He died so that we could be forgiven, so that the gift is wrapped and sitting on the chair beside us, waiting for us to pick it up and receive it. Now Romans 10, 9 through 10 tells us that we must believe in our heart, believe in my heart, and confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, God, and Messiah, and that Jesus rose from the dead in order to be saved. He didn't raise to be saved. He rose so we could be saved. I have to believe it in my heart, but just believing who Jesus is isn't quite enough because a lot of people believe but don't accept. The demons believe and cannot accept. They already made their choice. In James it says, you, you believe in God, so what? The demons believe in God, and it causes them to shudder with fear. Well, it's belief in your heart, but then it's, it's following through. The confession is the accepting. So I pray to God, and I say, you know what, God? I know you're real. I believe Jesus was real. I believe he was born to, to Mary, who was the virgin, and he lived a sinless life. I believe he died on the cross so that I could be forgiven. I believe it's available to me. And, and so I accept that gift. Key words. I accept that gift. I believe in my heart. I confess with my mouth. I accept that gift. I'm a sinner. I deserve to go to hell because that's what the wage requires. But in your forgiveness, I can go to heaven. You are Lord. You are God. You are Messiah or Savior or Christ. And then now that I've believed and I've accepted, I simply promise that I'm going to live for you. Do the best I can. So the title of the sermon is What About Jesus? The subtitle is Jesus Must Be the Focal Point of Any Christmas Message, whether it's the nativity scene or a Christmas carol or readings from Scripture on Christmas Day. It's got to focus on Christ. My question is, are you ready to make Jesus the focal point of your life? Is the Christmas story going to affect you? And I know most of you have already made that choice, but there may be some who haven't. If you have, start praying for those who haven't. If you haven't, please listen more carefully than, than the rest of the whole time. You can receive that gift of salvation right now. It, it's, it's a one-time thing. You don't, you don't, he doesn't take it back, and then you have to receive it again, and then he takes it back, and you receive it again. He gives it, and it is given. You can receive forgiveness of your sins. And you have to pray. You need to have a conversation with God. You need, to, you need to acknowledge Him. So you might say something like this. Dear Jesus, I admit I'm a sinner. I was like the throw in. You already knew that. <laughs> I admit I'm a sinner. And, and I deserve to go to hell. Like all other sinners. I also know that you died on the cross for my sins. And because you're God, that can pay the price for me. I also believe you're offering me a gift of forgiveness so that I can be saved and I can go to heaven. I accept that gift. 
And I promise from now on to live for you. That's as easy as, as it is. There's no magic words. It's, it's believing and confessing. So what I want to do is I want to offer an opportunity for anyone to say that prayer. I, I'm going to say it again. And I'm going to break it down into little phrases so you can say it to God. Don't say it to me. I have no power. I have no authority. I can barely feed myself. All right? I, I don't have that authority, but God does. And so you say to God what's in your heart. And I'm just going to lead a prayer. And if this is who you are, if this is what you want to say, you repeat it to God. You can say it out loud or you can say it quietly. It doesn't matter because he can hear your thoughts. And so I'm going to do that, and then I'll close this all in prayer. So, dear Jesus, I do admit that I'm a sinner. And, of course, you did know that already. I do believe that you were born to Mary in that stable, and that you lived a sinless life, and that you died on the cross. I also believe that you rose again, and because of your resurrection, I can have forgiveness. I accept that gift of forgiveness, and I promise to do my best to live for you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now if you said that prayer, don't leave without telling somebody, because we kind of get excited about that. Well, let's all close in prayer. Father God, thank you for our message today. I do appreciate a nativity scene because it reminds me that Jesus was born in a manger, in a stable. And I do appreciate the Christmas songs because they remind me to think about the Savior and to think about what he did. And Father, we don't need to be too nitpicky. Sometimes it's fun, sometimes it's not. But Thanks for reminding us today that Jesus Christ is the reason for Christmas. He's the focal point. And it didn't stop on his first birthday. It continues on today. He's still the center of everything. So, Father, help us to ponder these things as Mary did. Help us to, to, to examine the scriptures as you've commanded us to. May we have a true understanding of who Jesus is based on the truth of scripture. May that be our top priority and our number one authority and so i ask the holy spirit to just cause us to think about these things and may our day be blessed may you be pleased with what we do in jesus name i pray amen